God's grace, his mercy, and his peace are yours on this Lenten Wednesday. So in 1910, there was this call for essays from the Times of London. And if you don't know about the Times of London, it's this great Ori newspaper that everybody reads in England. It's one of those really traditional ones that if you're in the know in 1910, you read the Times of London. And so they put out this call for essays to all the famous authors, poets, musicians, political leaders, and they wanted to have in their supplement all these essays. And the question that they asked everyone was, what is wrong with the world? That's an interesting question. And in 1910, when you've got the rise of nationalism and social Darwinism and imperialism and nations rising against nations, and sure enough, four years later, we're going to have World War I, you can see why a newspaper would be interested in celebrity opinions. One author wrote in with the simplest, easiest answer that you can possibly give on this issue. This is how it goes. Dear sirs, comma, I am, period, your sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Do you get what's happening here? What's wrong with the world? I exist. That's what's wrong with the world. They did not expect this. They were expecting this great, long, you know, 25-paragraph essay with great poetry and all these literary devices, but Chesterton really just kind of cuts to the chase and says, well, no, no, what's wrong with the world? Look in the mirror. Look in, I'm looking in the mirror. We all look in the mirror. That's what's wrong with the world. Psalm 6, our text for today, is a, a psalm that kind of makes us do that, it makes us look in the mirror and realize how broken we are before God. It's the first of the so-called penitential psalms. Uh, there's a Roman historian named Cassidorius, and he was really concerned about Christian education. And so to get people to read more and to know the word of God more, he assigned the penitential psalms as the first reading assignment. And so they would read this first, and because of their emotional impact, it got people into the word of God, and so he used this to instruct Christians. And it began a tradition in the church so that in the Middle Ages, people that could afford it would buy something called the Book of the Hours, and they were a little book, not much bigger than this piece of paper. In fact, more like your bulletin here. They were probably about this big. And they were not printed. There was no normal printing press at the time. So they were hand-bound, and they were covered in illuminated manuscripts. They were painted, and they were, uh, there was scroll work, and there was calligraphy. They were beautiful books. And there was a section of these penitential psalms. When you have sinned, or when you realize that you're broken, or you're sick, or whatever it is that's going on, you turn to those penitential psalms, and with these lavishly decorated illustrations, pray Psalm 6, or Psalm 51, or any of these other penitential psalms. It's a beautiful tradition that started in the church, and especially during the season of Lent. Um, so it opens up asking for God's mercy. And this psalm really does start this way, with a really strong recognition of the wrath of God. The psalmist himself fears this wrath. He's not talking to other people. He fears it. It's in the first person. He wants to be personally delivered from it. We see that in verse 1. It says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. A prayer like this suggests that the only, only the grace of God can save us from the wrath of God. And it's important that we don't try to overhumanize this idea of wrath. It's not like God's having a temper tantrum or that he's getting like annoyed or peevish with us or something like that, it means something a little different with God. When I think of this, I think of my five-year-old. He just turned five yesterday. Lucas turned five. When he was little, he had what we call a rage monster side. And so something bad would happen, and I kid you not, and if he's watching online, he'll, he'll smirk, smirk at this because he knows it's about him. 
But what will happen is, is if he was mad, and there's a piece of paper over here, and something happened and he didn't have anything to throw or rip, he wouldn't scream or yell. He'd look for something, scramble, and then rip, and then start yelling. Because he had to express his rage, you know, the rage monster. That is not God's version of rage. You can see that in a two-year-old, the rage monster. If you see the uh, YouTube channel, Dude Perfect, they have this recurring figure of the rage monster with stereotypes and things like that. God's wrath is not like that in the least. And by the way, I did not have to teach him to do that. Right? Um, there's a famous Christian speaker. His name's Vadi Bakum. He's this, uh, used to be a big football player. He's now uh, a reformed pastor. And he once said something along the lines of, about kids, that they're vipers and diapers. <laughs> and I like that line. So I'm, I'm using it. So if I, a couple of my high school students here, we, we watched him on this. And he basically said, they're small so they don't kill you, and they're cute so you don't kill them. Right? That's his line for that. And I think there's truth. There's truth in that. And it's honest. It's honest. And that's why I let, what I love about these psalms and this psalm here is it's honest. It's honest about our condition. Lent is a season, to be honest. So this is much more serious than a temper tantrum. In the book of Romans, the word for wrath in Greek happens 12 times, and it usually implies those who are hard of heart or have turned their backs and deliberately refused the grace of God. So me and you, every single one of us, are naturally opposed to God in our broken condition. In fact, in Romans 1, those who are considered under God's wrath are actually given up by God, meaning God allows human beings who reject his grace to their own evil. Um, C.S. Lewis captured this really well in his book, The Great Divorce, when he said there's only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. I was talking to Pastor Dinger, he calls it Burger King theology, right? Have it your way. <laughs> Psalm 6 takes the doctrine of sin here very seriously. Um, the sin spoken here is deliberate and it's willful. It's not just a mistake. It's not a, oops, God, I'm sorry, I just accidentally dropped your, you know, I dropped your vase or something. That's not what this is. It's rather a voluntary affront to God's image in us. The sin is both by nature, it's inborn, we call that original sin, and by choice. It's a both and. And the taking away of sin required the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross. This fact by itself tells us how serious this whole business of sin actually is. Notice that this sort of sin also in this passage is connected with Sheol or the grave or death. It's, in, it's mentioned in verse 5. Death is the consequence of sin, and it's the most visible expression of the cost of our brokenness. It's the visualization of what sin does. Notice also that sin is felt in our inner being in the first couple of verses, the groaning of bones in their innermost being, which leads to grief and tears. In fact, the eyes are wasting away later on in the psalm, which is this image of a lack of wholeness. In Middle Eastern cultures, when you're blind, you can't rule. I don't know if you know that, but in, in, the, in Byzantium later on, in the Byzantine Empire or in Arab cultures, if you were blinded, you could not be king because it meant you weren't whole. So in this psalm, when it says that you're blind or you're wasting away and you're covering your couch in tears, you lack wholeness physically in addition to the original condition of sin. In fact, when you view this psalm in light of the New Testament, the enemies the author refers to in verses 7 and 8 as foes or workers of evil could actually be our ultimate enemies, enemies the unholy trinity of sin, death, and the devil. Those are our ultimate enemies. Paul says that in Ephesians. We don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, right? So this psalm isn't exactly one that you'd put as part of the self-esteem movement. Okay? That's not what this is for. This is not your be, be your best you now sort of message. 
or be true to yourself and trust your heart. This is not a Disney princess song or something. Instead, this psalm is brutally honest and realistic about who we are and how we have no hope on our own. Notice also that this psalm looks inward. This is not a comparison game with, I'm not like the other guy's God. It doesn't say that. It does not say, well, at least I haven't gone that far. That's not the message here. It's, all, it's inward focused. It's taking the speck out of our own eyes, to use the words of Christ. Our world likes to think that we're naturally pretty good, or that it's sort of like a game of weights and measures. As long as my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, God will just accept me anyways, because he loves me. Uh, both this psalm and the gospel reading take care of that pretty quick. There's an, um, so that's the reason I told you that anecdote about Chesterton, that honesty, that idea about being I am, I, I exist, it's my brokenness. So what's the solution to this? And it really is easy to blame other things. Right now, it could be politics or viruses. It could be other people. It could be the economy. It could be the media. But the answer of what's wrong with the world is simple. I am. By humbling ourselves and recognizing this, the great I am, who is the definition of love, mercy, and grace, longs to meet us and restore us. Because if the psalm ended right there, that I, those just first few verses, it'd be kind of depressing. Because it'd be like, wow, what? I feel awful. You know, I can just flagellate myself about how bad I am, and that's it. The good news is, is there's three other verses at the end. This is what they say. Depart from me, and I've got the ESV in front of me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. The person of faith has confidence that God hears him. As Christians, we can now say to death, sin, and the devil, they are now greatly ashamed. We can say, depart from me, because we are now in Christ. That's that theme of being that we have this week from the Red Letter Challenge. As Paul says so often in his letters, we are in Christo, we are in Christ. Instead, he not only forgives us, but he gives us a mission as his ambassadors in this world. And for some reason, I think we have a hard time accepting this fully. We tend to say things like, well, I know God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Or we want to hold on to those hurts or hold on to those griefs. We have bitterness. I once heard a pastor say that bitterness is harbored hurt. You just keep dwelling on it. You hold on to it. You refuse to let that bitterness go. Or maybe that you truly did screw up. Maybe it's something that you did, and you refuse to let that go. Then God himself promises that your sins are forgotten as the east is from the west, or that you're white as snow or as white as wool. The work has already been done 2,000 years ago. And if we truly know this and grasp God's promised forgiveness through faith, we will naturally want to offer that same forgiveness and grace to others. That's part of the reason we're in this Red Letter Challenge. It's not just so much that we know these things, but that we practice these things. And so if we are in Christ and we are forgiven, how much more should we appear that way to the rest of the world so that they also might see that light of Christ, so they can be in Christ and be forgiven and extend that love to others? There's this constant tension also between the now and the not yet in the Christian life. So even though we've already been baptized into Christ and we have victory over death and eternal life, we can you know, thumb our nose at the devil, a life which has already begun will never end. We nevertheless await the final realization of Christ's victory in the resurrection. Because we are at the same time saint and sinner, it's easy, for, it is healthy, not easy, healthy, forgive me, for us during a season like Lent and doing something like the Red Letter Challenge 
to take stock of where we are in our walk with Christ and pray Psalms like Psalm 6, or to be like the tax collector who can only ask for God's mercy and stand on nothing else. And because of that, we can know that we are forgiven. So during this time in Lent and during this, uh, this Red Letter Challenge, let's stand on Christ alone, trust in his promises for forgiveness, and extend that mercy to others. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for the Psalms, how they can express the whole gamut of the Christian life, both needing forgiveness, the victory that comes from being in you, seeing the challenges that we have, honesty about our grief. Thank you for your word and how it applies to us in 2021, just as it did to your servant David 3,000 years ago. Lord, as we uh, enter further into the season of Lent, I pray that you would walk alongside us, that you would remind us who we are in you, that you would remind us that you have already, through your son, conquered sin, death, and the devil, so that even though when we grieve our mistakes, even though when we mourn and ask for forgiveness, we can also have a certain hope that this is not the final word, but rather that in the end, we're going towards an empty tomb. So thank you, Lord, for the season of Lent that is honest, but also thank you, Lord, that it's not the end of the story, but that the end of the story is the life of the world to come. We ask all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.